With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. There is a scandal that is so big that even... Elon Musk has tweeted about it, and it's been trending on Twitter, Google, YouTube, and it's a scandal in the chess world, not the most likely world for scandals. But essentially, the world champion of chess, Magnus Carlsen, who I greatly, greatly admire, he's the, probably the best chess player in history. I mean, he's just amazing. And he lost a game to a very young player, a 19-year-old named Hans Niemann, who I also admire and whose games are very wonderful to watch. and. There was an immediately afterwards, Magnus quit the tournament. He has never done that before. And every there was wild speculation. Why did he quit the tournament? Even Gary Kasparov, who's been on this podcast, who was a former world champion, said this was unprecedented. And we need more, we need to hear something from somebody about what is going on. But the implication was is that Carlson may have thought, we don't know what he thought, but he may have thought Hans Niemann cheated. First off, how do you cheat in live chess over the board? We'll discuss this in a second. But Hans Niemann did admit that when he was 12 years old and when he was 16 years old, he did some cheating online. So that is what is known. I bring on the world's greatest expert in chess cheating, and he uses computer analysis to determine if people are cheating. He has analyzed hundreds of thousands of games, tens of thousands of cases of alleged cheating, all the way going back to a world championship in 2006, where one player accused another of cheating by using a computer in the bathroom. And Ken Regan is not only a computer science professor at the University of Buffalo, who's done a lot of excellent work on chess cheating and, and other things, but he's also an international chess master. He's a very, very strong player. He doesn't remember it, but in 1988, I played him a casual game uh, 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 that when we just randomly met each other and I lost that game. And I remember specifically him explaining how I lost the game and how I might've been able to won to, to win. But now I'm so grateful to talk to him, uh, however many years later, 35 years later and talk to him about this, this scandal, given that he is the expert. And I think what he says is kind of the conclusive answer about what is happening in the chess world right now. And without further ado, here is Ken Regan. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Professor Ken Regan and also international chess master Ken Regan, you are the world's expert on identifying computer chess cheating. You're, you work with all the major online 
chess servers, you help tournament organizers for over the board tournaments as well. That's when people are playing live and in front of each other. You have been very successful identify both identifying cheaters and identifying people who are not cheating. And I have many questions about cheating in general, but I also have questions about the recent scandal, Magnus Carlson, maybe he didn't accuse anyone of anything. That's the genius of Magnus Carlson, but he insinuated that a player he had played might've been cheating over the board, or at least there's some suspicion. And again, we don't know what Magnus Carlson was, was accusing anyone of and it's, and there's no evidence of anything, but maybe give a little bit of a lay of the land and just in general, how do people cheat at chess? Okay, well, I've put all the different mechanisms by which people have cheated chess to a Dr. Seuss rhyme uh, in my 2014 TEDx Buffalo talk. And I even left out one verse, which was some had computers in their shoes or had them hidden in the loops. The reality of it is, have you heard the one about how your iPhone is more powerful than the world's best supercomputer in 1993? Well, uh, 1993 is only a little before when Deep Blue beat Kari Kasparov. And the fact definitely is that your phone can play chess better than I measured Deep Blue play. So I measured Deep Blue pretty well playing at 2850 level against Kasparov. But with a cell phone, you can be over 3000, uh, far out of touch of what any human on the planet, including Magnus Carlsen, is capable of sustaining for a long period of time. And Ken, just to define some terms, Chess has a rating system where, let's say, the average player is rated 1,500, and every 100 to 150 points, higher or lower, is another standard deviation, meaning if you're 1,650, you could beat a 1,500 probably two out of three times. To put it clearly how good Magnus Carlsen is, he's 2,800, which means he'll never lose to pretty much anyone <laughs> except yes. like one of the top 20 players in the world or top 100 players in the world, yes. and he's at 2,800 because Stockfish, which is the computer on Lee Chess and Chess.com is probably around 3,500 from what I understand. Yes. Here's my view of the world, which Alpha Zero upended to some extent. So the, the, the designed standard deviation of the rating system is 200 gila. That's at the source. At, at the end, it depends on how many games you play. So the, uh, the linchpin of the rating system is that if you are 200 rating points stronger than your opponent, then you expect to take about 75% of the games. Now, actually, because of rating uncertainty, it's a little less. Uh, I could go into that, but that's the main idea. So now this, this 200 rating point, 75% expectation is the notion of a class unit in the US rating system. That's why class A, class B, class C are all 200 rating points wide. And the Hungarian writer, Laszlo Mero, abstracted this to other games. So the depth of the game is the number of class units from a beginning adult player to the world human world champion. By the way, this is a fascinating way to look at whether a game is quote unquote interesting or not. So, so like chess realistically probably has 15 or so, maybe more, maybe like 20 classes because at the higher levels, it's more, a little more fine grained. At the time, Mero and people like me uh, tabbed the beginning of the scale at 600. But we have scholastics where there are valid ratings below 100, and the 200-point difference is known to be still operating down there. So 100 is the USCF floor, but there are proposals to remove it. They don't want people to have negative ratings now. 
And so, so some games that have, by the way, some games that have rating systems very similar to this rating system is ping pong has a rating system yep. that works exactly the same. I believe backgammon. Oh, it's, it's wider than that. 538.com uses ELO ratings unadorned with exactly the same principle. So I'll get to that in a moment. Okay. So chess from, from 600 to 2,800 is 11 class units. Laszlo Mero uh, measured uh, backgammon and checkers at 10 class units. Japanese chess at 14 class units. Wow. And go, the figure I saw was 25 to 40. Obviously, you should use the lower end of that scale, but uh, even so, Alpha Zero, Alpha Go busted it. But anyway, the point is that this is a measure of the progress of Moore's Law on the software end. So it took about eight or nine years longer to beat Japanese chess than chess, our chess, because of the three class unit difference. Okay, so you can phrase the software Moore's Law in terms of the number of class units per year that computers improve. And that's the conceit of a paper that I wrote by invitation for the Springer Verlag 10,000 Lecture Notes of Computer Science Anniversary issue called Rating Computer Science via Chess. So at any rate, cut it simple, our phones definitely outclass us by several class units. And I put 3,500, 3,600 as a good estimate of where the best computer programs uh, running at standard time controls are now. So just to be clear then, like if someone is at a tournament, regardless mm -hmm. of their rating, but let's just say they're playing in a regular tournament near their town, they're 1800 rated, 1500 rated, they have a phone in their pocket, they go to the bathroom, they shut the bathroom door, put in the moves of their game, and the computer tells them a move, that move is gonna be the best move in that position. Almost certainly, or certainly good enough. And to be clear again, there's, let's say, two types of cheating. I'll call one stupid cheating and the one more sophisticated. Stupid right. cheating is if you take every single move and run it through the computer. More sophisticated would be three or four times in the game, you go to the bathroom when you're a little unsure what's happening and you get the best move in that. And 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 former world champion Biswanathan Anand has been known to say, even if you do that once, it, can make, it could result in a difference of 150 rating points over time. And I think that is accurate. One bit is 150 yellow. I think it's accurate. And so in tournaments, typically, like a big, wide-open tournament, they'll say no phones in the bathroom. They have trouble enforcing it, but they enforce it as best they could. And in a more sophisticated tournament, they'll even do detectors and search you and, and so on for your phone. But uh, let's talk online cheating first, which is on chess.com, I could simply have my phone on next to playing you know, on my computer on chess.com. Anybody could do this. And, and cheating, apparently, is, is very widespread. I don't want to say it's the norm, but it happens more than one would think. Like I regularly get emails from chess.com saying, we noticed someone you played was cheating. You got your rating points back. So yeah. I get that maybe like once every couple of days. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Bayesian prior rate of cheating in online chess is 100 to 200 times higher than over the board. I can't even imagine, by the way, how to do it over the board other than the bathroom thing I just described, which we've seen. There was a, there was a case a few years ago, a grandmaster who was, uh, suddenly went from like 2,500 to high 2,600s, uh, like in a matter of months, he, there's a photo of him in the bathroom looking at his phone that he was hiding in his pants. Yeah. I don't know which one. There are several of those. So, yeah. so, so, well, so yeah, I, maybe you're talking about Grandmaster Igor's Rouses. Yes. That was in 2019. Yeah. There have been earlier cases.
So, so before we get to the current scandal, online cheating, how do you really detect it? Like how, how does one detect it? How does chess.com detect it? And I know they use you as a consultant or whatever, but. Yeah, chess.com has a multifaceted cheating system and I generally always defend it. Uh, you could say that it has two or three prongs of which only one prong overlaps what I do. Uh, so the, the statistical prong involves the engine similarity of the played moves, possibly taking into account the time control. Uh, but then there's also information that they gather through their interface. Okay, that is that is more of a trade secret, so I cannot go into that. Right, but what, what if I were to guess, and and from little pieces here and there, is they see if you're swapping screens, uh, and you know, if, depending on the browser and the browser's API, my guess is they probably should have deals with other companies that have chess computers involved, so they can see if you're switching to a screen with a chess computer running and, and so on. My, my guess is they're, they're looking a little bit more at screen swapping or tab swapping during a game. Yeah, and there are two other things. So there are two common places that are publicly known that I can say without compromising anything. One is if you use a bot to execute your moves, that bot is gonna click on the same pixel every time relative to the square. So it mm -hmm. might click in the dead center of the square, okay? It's certainly not something that a human being using a mouse is able to do. So that pattern will get you detected in three or four moves. And then the other one is if you get in the habit of consulting something off your main screen, you might show that habit even when you have an obvious recapture. So a telltale little head delay of obvious recapture. Okay, so those are funny things, but it gets to the idea of, of, of and Around those are very sophisticated Gaussian modeling, modeling the distribution of times actually taken by a human player to play an obvious recapture. This is what it's, it's the uh, data that it's compared against. It's mathematically very similar to how the Higgs boson was detected by contrasting the bumps from the experiments involving likely decays of the Higgs boson to just ordinary background decays. So I see. So if there's an obvious recapture, you either do it instantly or for whatever reason you're away from the board, there's an arbitrary amount of time it takes. It's not like every three seconds, like clockwork, there's a move. Yes, exactly. Because sometimes I'm not looking at this game that I'm playing. I'm maybe reading a Facebook post because there's an obvious forcing sequence happening and I don't always make the recapture instantly, for instance. Yeah. But then it's more random the time I take. So the main thing about this is that online providers have access to much larger amounts of information than I do. I use only the moves in the game. And curiously, I don't even use the timings of the moves simply because those are not always available. And you know, five or so years ago, they weren't necessarily reliable either. So, I, I, so my model is based on hundreds of thousands of games between players of all ratings but the sources for those games don't even give the time control of the tournament, let alone the times for individual rules. So I have no basis on which to model for contrast, so I just ignore that data. I have two questions about this. If chess.com is looking for how many moves did this player make that was exactly what a computer would make, there's two questions about that. One is, A, what if a player knowing what Viswanathan Anand said about you only need one move. What if a player only does this 
every 10 moves or or doesn't yeah. take the top suggestion, takes the fourth suggestion each time. That's a real challenge. Yeah. So, so there's one mathematical thing that helps. So we all know the term flying under the radar, which is what you're describing. But in the physical, flying under the radar means you can keep a constant altitude. Okay. But in the statistics, you cannot keep a constant at altitude. If you cheat at the same rate, no matter what kind of fraction that rate is, like one-eighth or one-tenth of the time, if you do it long enough, eventually you will catch you statistically. So, so you're saying that one method of detection is to look at many games and see if there's a pattern where someone's always 100% accurate every sixth move. Or oh, every fourth well, move. not necessarily so regular. Instead, what I have is I'm able to measure the amount of discrepancy. And the point is that if you keep sending at a constant rate, ultimately the deviation will go up. You have to taper off your sinning at a rate proportional to the one over the square root of the number of moves. I don't think I understand. Like, like stay what, the radar. Yeah, I don't think I understand. So what's the detection technique there? It's just the laws of statistics. So a similar thing, if you have someone who's insider trading, or uh, or you know, making suspicious trade trades. You know, a small number of suspicious trades might fly under the radar. But if the person keeps on making suspicious trades at a constant rate, ultimately it adds up. But so, at, what do you mean by a constant rate? Because you said also the rate might, the, the move, the number of moves they wait before they consult a computer might change. It, right, but if, but if it, the average stays the same, then the deviation keeps ramping up. So, what do you mean the average stays the same? Well, sorry, if, I'm, if so, the average number of moves could uh, uh, go by between your consultation of the computer stays constant, then right. So wouldn't a smart cheater vary up the the number of moves? That, well, vary it up, but but also as to taper off the global rate. Like maybe you know. Well, sorry, I don't want to give too much advice here, but let's put it this way. Yeah, but, but by you, the way, this is not a guide to cheating. We're just trying. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in the in Ben Johnson's podcast, I gave a numerical example that basically was to the effect that if you cheat on three moves per game by nine games, I can catch you. I see, but but this leads to the second question. Mm -hmm. Let's say you, Ken Regan, you're an international master. You're a very strong player. Let's say you were playing the average tournament player. You would expect to have almost 100% accuracy to the computer because they're right away going to make weak moves and you will make the obvious best move, which is, would be the, which would probably be the computer move. So, so some, and even when two players of equal ability are playing each other, I was just looking yesterday, two 1000 rated players were playing with 84% accuracy to the computer. Yeah. And that's because they're both making equally weak moves. So it's possible to make the best computer the best computer move is also going to be a somewhat, not a weak move, but a way, an easy way to exploit a weak move will be the best computer move. Yeah. Well, it, it is true that the number one case where my results exonerate a player with a high matching percentage to the computer is when the, the opponent played a forcing game and left the player only one option to stay alive or only one option to win. And chances are a strong player and a computer are both going to find that necessary move. This was the case with the original toilet gate accusation in 2006 to Paula versus Kremnik in the world championship match. And it was in particular in game two, the, the fact that Topolov was winning beautifully and then uh, did not 
press's advantage and then a lost was, I think, the most upsetting thing to the Bulgarians. And it is true that for the last 32 of the 64 moves of the game, I reproduced claims that Kramnik matched over 90%, but most of those moves were completely forced. So this is in public on my website, along with in bold green, the statistical principle involved. And in 16 years since, I've not had any reason to change it. And yet there are some kinds of moves that a computer will make that are very non-human-like. For instance, they can make a move that seems obscure, but 11 moves later, you realize why it was important. But you know, no, no human would have calculated why right. that move would have been important. So how do you know? Like It seems like it would be easy to, to detect cheating if you could detect any of those moves, but it's very difficult to determine whether a move is computer-like or human-like. Right, it is. What's interesting is I have gone for the minimalist approach of trying to infer that organically only from the numbers. So I have an objective non-chess-based measure of when a position is difficult or complex. And so I'm hoping to detect smart cheating by using a distribution that upweights complex positions and downweights positions with easy choices. So if it's not a forcing sequence, but there is a move that is significantly, like the first choice is significantly better than all the other choices, you would weight that more. That's right. Although if it's a dead end game where there are 10 moves that are equal, but they all lead to draws, then I have to downweight that as well. So I actually weight by the amount of hazard in the position. The, by the, the probability and magnitude of losses that a misstep may incur. And that's the type of position when you would most want to call on a lifeline. So, um, so that, that's my idea anyway. I did all this work in 2019, but in the pandemic for online chess, the one drawback of that approach is that by clumping the distribution, I increased the denominator of the Z-score, making the model a little less sharp. Okay, so what does that mean? So it means that if, if, you, if, you, if you clump up a distribution, the standard deviation goes up. And that standard deviation is your basic yardstick. You're, you're talking in multiples of that. So if I have a deviation of, say, a three and a half sigma the old way, and I use a larger deviation, like using a meter instead of a yard as my yardstick, then my score is only three meters instead of three and a half yards. And, and that means my, my uh, statistical score is going to be less. So unless a person really is smart cheating, the work needed to make my, my program detect smart cheating actually makes it a little duller. So during the pandemic and online chess, uh, there, I definitely got results that were sharper with my simple unit weight approach rather than the smart cheating design to approach. Translation, so, in online chess during the pandemic, I encountered a lot of dumb cheating. I see. People who were just every move using the computer. Yeah, or, or using it in bursts, but not with discrimination as to when they felt they would need the help. So whereas what Anand is talking about is a position like you could play bishop takes h7 check, but you don't know if it works. Give me one bit of information on whether that move works. Right, right. And that's the smart cheating approach. When you know a critical position and you consult a computer. Right.
And so I guess the third question is, and this occurs due to the pandemic and also is related to this current chess cheating scandal with a player named Hans Niemann. During the pandemic, a lot of young people, and Hans Niemann was, was, is a teenager still, a lot of young people very quickly improved because they had more time to study during the pandemic. And then the difference between 2020 and 2022, when they start playing in tournaments, they might've had a huge leap in rating that would not have, that, that, that defies kind of statistical right. planning. So this is where I would like to share my screen. So what you just touched on has been the number one scientific activity that I've had to do during the pandemic. So start screen share, if I may have position. So I should say one other thing about myself. Um, I co-write one of the major blogs in computing. It was a top 55 blog roundup uh, two years ago, and we were in the top quartile of it behind publisher sites. This is the blog started by Professor Richard J. Lipton, Emeritus of Georgia Tech at Princeton. We have co-authored a textbook on quantum computing with MIT Press. So this blog has over a thousand posts uh, in it. Wow. Um, I could mention Tyler Cowan has sometimes referenced this blog. So he's a childhood friend as well, of course. Also, and, uh, also a, a former New Jersey State champion uh, around the same age as you, and you're both from right. New Jersey. Team, so. we, we were on winning Garden State Chess Association four teams uh, in the uh, or what became the U.S. Amateur East. Uh, for yeah, so yeah he, he's time. been on the podcast quite a bit. Yep. So, so anyway, um, so this is an article that I wrote. So, um, so one of the realities of the pandemic is that because online chess is not officially rated, ratings of, of aspiring, you know, growing junior players flatlined. Okay. So for instance, this is Annie Wang who won the uh, U.S. junior female section last year. So the point is I estimated with a back of the envelope formula, but it's been surprisingly accurate where Annie Wang's real rating really should be. So I had her up around 2480 at the time I was doing this tournament. And the real challenge is to be able to tell, it's not so much at the top end, the real challenge is to be able to tell for really young players that they are in this kind of explosive growth curve. So one example I could mention is, is at an in-person tournament, junior tournament in Asia, a kid was on the wall chart at 1595 and he was beating 2100s, 2200 players. And I got contacted about this. Um, but I just said, you know, my, my pandemic lag adjustment formula places him already at 2100. So it's not a surprise he's beating 2200s. So it's catching people here. And I can't tell whether I'm accurate for a given player, but for tournaments en masse, I have been incredibly accurate, including for the Olympiad, especially in the female section. There are uh, were a lot of junior teams, including, I think, New Zealand or one of the Ocean Pacific teams had all junior players. So I put my adjustment rating adjustment formula and, uh, I'm, you know, it's 28 months of the pandemic out. So it's a really extrapolating, but it was still... It was four to five times more accurate than what you would get if you didn't use the adjustments. Uh, and that means closer. And actually for the women at the Olympiad, my screening average screening score was 50.00, exact bullseye. With, so with, so with the do, adjustment. You, 
does your cheating algorithm, your, your cheating detection algorithm take into account rating? Like if someone's playing above, like statistically significantly above their rating level? Right. Now for when it gets to a full test stage, then I consult with people, in fact, to get the most accurate fix on the rating, not just what my formula gives. But I, I screen uh, you know, uh, 10,000 games a week, or not quite 10,000 games wow. a week. But, you know, the week in chess says, and chess base updates of 5,000 games each with considerable overlap. So I get, all the, I, I get these massive tables, so I can tell that on average, my formula is working just right for those massive tables. So and yeah. how often do you detect a cheater where nobody asked you to detect a cheater? I, yeah, that's a good question. I, and the problem is I, with my responding to that is I can't definitely say the person was a cheater because often this is not followed up. So I'll just say I detect high outliers and inform about them and sometimes they're followed up and sometimes they're not. And is this for offline or for online tour? I mean live tournaments or online tournaments? Both. And there are some people, there are some cases. Well, in fact, I just brought two players to chess.com's attention last week. So. And are they like high-rated title players? I mean, I'm not looking for names, but I'm just curious. How prevalent is cheating at, let's say, the highest levels? It's all over the place. So That is unbelievable. I, mean, I, mean, I wouldn't say not in the elite, you know, not in the 2600 plus, but you know, there are there have been a couple of uh, of uh, cases of people being sanctioned at, uh, at 2600 plus level that are in the public record. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? 
answer to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So let's take a look at the Hans Niemann case. So yeah. again, what happened was, is that Magnus Carlsen lost a game to Hans Niemann. So several things about it were interesting. One is Magnus Carlsen was white. It's it's very unusual for Magnus Carlsen to lose a slow rate of game with the white pieces. Not only that, he had just gone 53 games in a row, which is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. 53 games in a row without a loss. And this was his loss to a, a person rated roughly 200 rating points lower than him. And Magnus was playing the white pieces. Also, Magnus said apparently had heard about Hans cheating years earlier, I guess, at chess.com. It was unclear whether it was years earlier or more recent, so we still don't know but there was some communication between chess.com and Magnus right after the game and Magnus dropped out with a, not saying why, but with a video saying, basically, I can't say why I'm dropping out or I'll get in trouble. He, he, he referred to another video of in another sport of someone saying that. And so there's been wild speculation was, was he a, was he accusing Hans Niemann of cheating? B was the cheating that Hans Niemann somehow knew Magnus's specific book preparation or was Hans cheating in that particular game? Or was there more just general cheating that Hans had been involved in? So Magnus was disgusted and didn't want to play anymore. There's been all this speculation. And every day there's new speculation. So the most recent one being this morning, I saw that Hans does significantly better on games where the moves are transmitted, you know, when they're live games, the games where the moves are transmitted to the public as opposed to games where they're not transmitted. Hans himself has admitted cheating when he was 12 and 16 online, and he also stated that he would never cheat in an over-the-board game. So I think this summarizes everything we know that's not circumstantial evidence. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence out there that is meaningless. Yeah. And by the way, I want to also state for the record, I admire Hans Niemann as a player, and I hope this is all proven false and that everything is good. He, he's a very interesting personality, and and whether you like him or not, and and his games are are amazing. And also, I admire the fact, and I, I want your comment on this. According to Hikaru, Hans Niemann has had the fastest rise at this level 
of anybody ever at the, from at that age. Like even though he's 19, that's still a fairly big age to go from a 2480 rating to a 2720 rating. And so so that's one of Nakamura's circumstantial evidence that there might be suspicion warranted here. But what, what, what's your feeling on that? And then just in general, we'll, we'll get okay, into the Okay, so, so a bunch of things here. So I'll just, uh, so I'll first state that uh, I'm still right in the middle of data analysis here. So there are some things I can't say, not because I don't feel at liberty to say them, but simply because the work has not been done yet. Okay. So, okay. so that, that, that's number one. Can you say what work hasn't been done yet? Oh, uh, sifting a lot of this metadata, for instance, the, uh, the, the thing you mentioned is from this morning, which I saw yesterday about the, the tournament's broadcast versus non-broadcast, where he does better. And also this other question about spurts by, um, you know, suddenly from, from uh, you know, 2460 to 2700 being unprecedented. I think I saw a response for that, but I've not even had time to, uh, to go through the details on that. So I'll work from the parameters of what's publicly known and, and, and what's definitely, what's settled at this moment. And stay away from the things where it's unclear even in my own work. Uh, so first of all, the organizers released a statement on Saturday uh, saying that both they and I, I've been in official consultation with the uh, tournaments in St. Louis, in fact, the entire Grand Chess Tour series uh, from the beginning, um, and we have not found any evidence or indication of over-the-board type cheating, engine type cheating. Over the board in this tournament? In this tournament, that's right. And and, and again, you you look at all the moves, you look at the relationship between what the computer would have played or second move or third move and what Hans played, and is it different than what Hans normally would have played, and you found... Well, that, that, that's a separate matter. So one thing about it is that my model has no chess knowledge built into it. No, that, and that's uh, on purpose to avoid potential bias. The danger of bias is far greater than the lack of knowledge. Sure. From that. And in fact, sometimes I don't even look at the game so as not to prejudice my own uh, you know, understanding in the case. So anyway, I mean, remember I said that with the, with the Kramnik game, that I reproduce a high concordance to the computer, but the game was quite clear cut. Okay, so this is the similar things operate here. How, how do you and define clear cut if you if there's no bias? Clear cut when there is one clear standout move. Uh, and but but again, a, one clear standout move could be impossible for a human to figure out, or it could be easy for a human to figure yeah, out. Yeah, that's right. Now this is the hardest part of my model. So uh, my model does try to ascertain when the best move will be especially difficult to find, such as when, when there are other moves that are very tempting. And in fact, for about, for one out of seven or one out of eight moves over players of all ratings, even the highest ratings, it does project to put the highest likelihood on an inferior move. And that gives me about two to three percentage points advantage in predictivity. So, for instance, with with a you know twenty seven hundred rated player, if I just predicted that the player would make the computer's best move, I'd be right fifty seven percent of the time. But if I use my model to sometimes predict inferior moves and judge when in the most difficult or complex positions, then I can get fifty nine to sixty percent hit rate. 
So if you want to bet on chess games, my model is absolutely what you should use if you think that 2% is enough of a return on your investment. And, um, uh, and there, there are a couple of other things that might surprise you. So if, so if you don't mind by going into a screen sharing uh, riff again. No, um, I'll, I'll read what's on the screen for the okay. benefit of people. So this listening. is a article I wrote when I settled my model in summer 20, uh, 2019. Uh, related to betting on horse races. So if you want to read that angle, this is it. And and so my old model used to always put the highest probability on the top move, which is the favorite. Now, this is an experiment. When you say probability, probability of what? It's a predictive analytic model. So it treats the moves, legal moves in the chess positions as the events and puts a probability figure on a player of a given rating making the, a, a given move. So what I'm looking at here is, um, the top move uh, for someone rated what is seventeen? So, so this is a controlled experiment. So yeah. I took all uh, uh, took uh, you know six thousand positions in my main training set, where the player to move was rated between one thousand and twelve hundred feet, and it was a position with many reasonable choices. At least ten moves valued within a quarter point of optimal. Okay. So, so moves where the information gained by choosing the computer's best move is most considerable. Okay. Now, this is like crowdsourcing the number. Wait, wait, wait. I, I have a question about that. If 10 moves are valued relatively similar to each other, what the computer says doesn't even really matter. I can choose any of those moves. That's what you think, right? Well, what right. you're looking at are the empirical results. So these... Very weak chess players, well, I'd say very weak, you know, but um, they nevertheless found the computer's best move one sixth of the time, certainly 14 percentage points better than the 10th best move, which was only a quarter point worse. And if so, if the evaluations really don't matter, then these moves should, these percentages should be all near 10% or near equality. Okay, I mean, they're weak chess players, so. 25% they play a move outside the top 10, uh, a blunder. But the main point is that this refutes the idea that weaker players prefer weaker moves. No, if you get enough weaker players and crowdsource them, they will still, with 4.5 percentage points clearance, uh, uh, pick the, the, the top-ranked move. Okay. And why is that? What's just philosophically what's happening there? We, because... It, there's a, an error, a noisy process by which we apprehend quality in chess. And we all have some basic notion of quality, and there are things that interfere or keep us unable to get the full truth of that quality. Nonetheless, you know, even a novice stock trader, okay, will occasionally make a good trade. And more often, and moreover, We'll have some idea of what feels in the gut to be a good idea, even if the player doesn't do the real deep research to see if that's really so. So, you know, a, a, a novice stock trader may be at a disadvantage competing against uh, well-armed people, but if it were a novice stock trader against the entire realm, range of society without these tools, uh, which chess is modeling a little more, the, the AO, in, in a boom time, the iron stock trader will do reasonably well. Okay? You don't have the phenomenon that in a reasonable upmarket time, average stock traders are going to make terrible choices. 
Okay. Right. They might not do as well as the brains, but that's why the stock market's publicly accepted because in the main, uh, John Q. Public has, has done fairly well. And the doing fairly well is the kind of distribution you're seeing here. Well, not the bottom line. Okay. So, um, so instead, what my work says makes a blunder in chess is when you're diverted by a shiny object. In other words, conned by the chess position. Okay. And uh, so that's so that's the uh, that's the approach to it. Now let me stop sharing screen. Get back to uh, to what you're talking about. So that's that's the phenomenon that I'm trying to capture in my uh, souped-up model. Um, so clear cut, therefore, means that there's not a lot of cases where my program is picking up the diversion in a chess position. In other words, what I'm saying is that. As far as my model can detect, just from the way move values jump around, that's that's the key. It looks at lower depth values and see how much they jump around. The strategy for Neiman in that position was fairly clear cut. Why is an isolated pawn gang up on it, win it, defend against the seventh rank counterattack? And there was one really nice move, e3, sacrificing a pawn so the knight gets to e4 and white suddenly threatened with checkmate. But Carlson tried to create a distraction with G4, and it turns out that that was his worst move of that. Uh, he was punished for trying to create a distraction. So there weren't many distractions for Black, and that's what my model is picking up. And how does your model determine what those shiny... So, so basically, a blunder happens after a shiny object like G4, like Carlson's G4, and yep. if he doesn't do the blunder... Does that suggest, I'm trying to figure out what suggests unusual play. Yeah, that's right. So, so that, well, that, yeah, uh, well, avoiding a real trap could be unusual play. Another question about what you just said. Yeah. Did you just use chess bias in your description of the game? Like, yes, you might know that in an isolated queen pawn position, the, the, these six moves are clear cut, but yeah. how do you, how does the computer distinguish whether it's easy, clear cut, or difficult. Well, that's what cut. I try to do organically, so I'll show you. But you're right. I mean, I play the C3 Sicilian as white, so I often had the same split pawn, pawn structure Carlson uh, had. And if I... If, if Note I, to self, when playing Blitz against Ken Regan, prepare for C3 Sicilian. Yes, and, and trade queens if you can, and gang up at my isolated C pawn. Okay. So this now is an example. This is by student, by the way, Tamal Bishwash, who's now on, on the faculty of, of, of RKM Ferry in Kolkata, India. He's from Bangladesh originally. So this was one of the main pivots of his thesis. So this is the uh, key moment in the 2008 World Championship match between okay. Brandick White and Anand Black in this position. So the question is, can White capture Black's D-point? Okay, so now a beginning player will say, no, Black's queen is on. Okay, slightly stronger, deeper play will say, hey, wait a second. Uh, if Black's queen takes it, I can move my rook, and I'm skewering Black's queen to the knight, and I'll get my piece back. In fact, I might win the bishop, too. Now, deeper player getting into your level will say, uh-oh, wait a second, Black can counterattack with knight f6 on my queen and move the knight out of trouble. But now, 
world championship level player, at least Kramnik fell into this, will say, ah, but after I take the queen and Black's knight takes my queen, I can go down here and get the bishop. Then I've got two healthy pass pawns on the queen side. Moreover, my bishop is defending my back rank, so I should be okay. Okay, I almost fell for that one. <laughs> yes, there you go. Well, Kramnik played into it, and he did not see what was coming until Anand executed on the board. Anand had seen a little further, and there was knight e3 attacking the bishop. And after pawn takes knight, pawn takes pawn, white's rook is completely out of position to Ugh. guard against the e-pawn coming down for checkmate. See, this is why chess is like a, a beautiful work of art. Like that, people can't see this position. Um, and for many people, it might not matter. But if you watch the video of this, we'll put the video on YouTube. This is just a beautiful, beautiful move at the end of this. And I could easily see how anyone can miss this, even a world championship level player. And what my model relies upon is that the computer at lower depths cannot see it either. So this was Stockfish 6, you know, current Stockfish in 2015. And at depth 9, the pawn capture it thinks is initially bad, but at depth 9, it jumps up to 0.77. And it stays in, you know, the range of a little over half of a pawn until depth 14. So that's a pretty considerable so, stretch. So it's looking 14 moves ahead. Right, looking 14 half moves, that's seven full moves ahead. And then seven and a half moves ahead, Suddenly, it goes to minus 181 because it has seen uh, Anand's trap. So this is the shiny object causing a diversion. So this is the case where my model will upweight the probability of falling into the trap. Basically, then, if someone makes a move where it suggests they've seen... So first, there's a, a, a move that the computer can make where it's wrong, 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 wrong. Then it switches. Then it switches back massively around yeah. 15 moves deep or more. And if someone makes a move like that, that could suggest cheating. Or if someone responds accurately to a move like that, it could suggest cheating. Any anything around this move. That's right. It's getting deep information. And there are people who are trying to assess this directly, which might be work, you know, on the scale of a single player. But for the vetting and validation of my model, I need to make sure that its scores stay within the normal distribution on massive amounts of data. So I had to program a way to do it organically just from the recorded engine values at various depths, not on any notion of chess knowledge of what's a deep position, because unless I paid the entire army of master players in the world to annotate hundreds of thousands of games that way, I just could not get the training data. So, so wait, it, it's is this a distribution issue, like a statistics issue, or like right here? I'm looking at what you showed as the computer valuation again. For 14 moves, the computer was wrong, and then at the 15th move, it suddenly saw this amazing thing. Now, most people, and, and by the way, it was massively wrong. It was like a, a two, three three point three pawn difference essentially. So, so do you really need a distribution or should you just look at every game which has people making moves yeah, that mimic? So that's true. So the distribution, so there's one distribution of values over the moves. That I get organically. But what I'm talking about for making sure that my model is reliable, that I don't go accusing people with incorrect justification, 
I need to attend to the, dis to the mass distribution of honest players and the statistics that they generate, including the fact that occasionally, you know, once every, you know, 30,000 entrants of a player into an event, that player is going to have a four sigma up, lucky day. Well, it, it could be the case too that they do in that particular case, they make the move and then they think, oh my God, I just blundered. And, but then as the game continues, they right. finally see the correct move. Right. So, so there's, so, so that's those, probably those explains. things happen. And yeah. I do re statistical randomized resampling of my training sets in millions of validation trials to make sure that it may happen, but it doesn't happen so often as to throw off the conformance of my model to the bell curve for uh, the great mass of honest players. But then let's take let's take Anand uh, Kramnik. They're both world champions, right. and <laughs> they clearly can make a move like that because they did make right. Anand did make that move. And but your system wouldn't accuse him of cheating because you have statistically analyzed his level of play players' games, and they will make those moves occasionally. Or how right. do you do that? That's that's uh, so they are yes. So that's so the point is they're they're high rated. So among the ba most basic things that I do, so I'm going to share my screen again. Uh, so more, more articles on this blog. And I must say the blog is a pre-publication venue. So th these things should go in papers, but the pandemic kept me so busy <laughs> that I only had time to do this. In fact, I have not had time to write an article about uh, Ali Riza Ferruzda's ultra bullet marathon and how that plays into my statistics. Um, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I analyzed that. So yeah, let's take the Hasdeva for a second. Then that's fascinating. Yes, but so, um, so here's the point. So this is a good statistical thing for stock market charting as well. So this is how roughly how my data stood, you know, ten years ago, when my reliable data was in the sixteen hundred to twenty seven hundred range. And what you're looking at is the percentage first line match versus a player's rating. So I said, you know, a 2,700 player will match about 57% of the time. There it is. Okay. But a, a 2,200 player, so here, will match the first line of computer only right around 50%. Which and is fascinating because you're saying then the difference between a, a, a 2,200 and what is the high, highest number, 2,640 or 2,540? Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying the difference between a, a, a master and like a super grandmaster is only 8% difference in terms of how they'll yeah, only 8 the percentage match. points. That's why gaining uh, two percentage points advantage is huge. And yeah. I guess it's because most moves are clear cut. Like the first five moves, for instance, of a game are always clear cut. You're always, you can, it's right. easy to make the top move. Uh, and then maybe it, it's really almost around moves 20 to 40 that are mm -hmm. the, you're going to find a critical position. It almost would be interesting to just look at moves 20 to 40 because I bet those percentages would change a lot. It, that's true. Now, that is, that is a fact that, 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 that there is an important sensitivity on the uh, index of the move of the game, which I try to average over, but ah, that's a really messy area. So let me pretend yeah. you didn't ask that. Okay, uh, it might that might be relevant per opening, or there's a lot of a lot more factors that are are messy. Yeah, there's lots of messy sausages in my shop here, but um, the a not sporting analogy I can make from having seen the U.S. Open yesterday is that um, 
you know, weak players do often play the best move of a position, and it's like holding serve in tennis. You know, a clearly inferior tennis player nevertheless does expect to win more than 50% of his or her own service games, uh, unless it was the match of Iga Swantek against Jesse Pagula over a 13th break serve. Okay, now anyway, the point I'm saying here is this looks like a perfect linear relationship. It's got an R squared of 0.99 in the social sciences you kill for something like this. So, so basically what I'm seeing is there's a straight line from the bottom left to the top right, where as you increase rating, you, yeah. you, very, um, you can see that the higher the rating, the more likely they are to pick the top computer-suggested move. Right. So at a given rating, like let's say 2200, mm -hmm. where it's roughly half the time they will pick the top engine-rated move, if over a number of games they're at 60% instead of 50%, there's only two conclusions. One is either they're cheating, or two is they're underrated and they're during a period of massive improvement, I guess. Right, although there is a third reality that I have to discount in talking about that. And that is the fact that this is actually not a linear relationship, even though it should be given the design of the rating system. So when I got more data, including data, more data above 2,700, simply put, there have been more players with that rating, say so have a lot more games. And with the availability of reliable data under 1,500, what looked like a linear relationship when you wind it is actually clearly curved. And I've had to revise my model to take that into account. But, but that's probably because, I mean, you have to take into account, I mean, this is getting a little into the weeds, but the rating system changes at below certain levels and above certain levels and also based on your age. So for instance, the, the K factor in ELO ratings tightens up after a certain rating level, meaning standard deviations are tighter. And I wonder if you take that into account. It might be. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. The, the root cause underneath yet. All I know is, is, is that I've had to take this into account. I mean, it looks to me that the, I mean, the younger players are more volatile because their improvement could be faster. So that's why it doesn't work as well at the very lower level. And at the higher level, the difference between a 2650 and a 2600 might be a full standard deviation as opposed to a 200 point difference. Right. And now one thing is in terms of estimating, there is the, the fact of higher rating uncertainty at lower ratings does bump up the standard deviation. And this has also been the case during the pandemic, you know, with official ratings frozen, there's a lot more uncertainty in my rating estimations for individual players. And that has bumped up my sigma. And that sigma bumps up in a way that is linear with the amount of data, number of games a player has played, rather than square root. So it's a real pain. So, so it's very interesting. So if someone's improving quickly, um, obviously the rating will adjust fairly quickly as well. But after the pandemic, when we went back to over the board, it could be the case, like you mentioned earlier, someone 1,500 can now be 2,100 in scale. Right. And at younger ages, that tends to happen more often than at higher ages. Mm -hmm. There also could be something where if someone just learned an opening and now they're playing that opening perfectly, even though they're still 1,500, suddenly their computer accurate moves will bump up for that opening. Right. And that's another fact that's especially important at fast chess, which is that the amount of book knowledge has increased. So the average novelty is now a move or so later than it was when I started 10 or so years ago.
Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. This gets to a kind of another um, prong of online cheating, which is they could simply have the book in front of them sometimes and not the book in front of them other times. And you could probably detect that. Like, so if someone plays a certain opening and they, and they get the top computer move 50% of the time, but there's like one day where five games in a row, they were 60%, you could suggest that could suggest that they don't have a computer in front of them, but they're simply reading the course right in front right. of them. Yeah. That, that's, and that's, that is also, by the way, the fact that prep is on no. So prep comes into play in a further iteration after I give my original report. 
But now let's wend back to the Neiman case because I think this is the crucial element. Yes. So in the game, Neiman versus Carlson, and I can find it quickly if you, I'll show it on the screen in a moment. Um, so in that game, uh, the official novelty was Carlson's queen takes d4. This is using chess base cloud and my chess base uh, updates. And uh, so, and so, so I just want to mention for, to set context, uh, and I'm not right now we're not, he's, Ken is not screen sharing. We're not looking at the game, but what I know of this game is that many people claimed that Carlson had never played this opening before. And Hans in the interview right afterwards said it was by miracle that he had studied and prepared for this opening. Cause people were not, I want, I don't want to say suspicious. They were, it was just unusual that he would have prepared for a game that an opening that Magnus never played, but apparently Magnus has played, as Hans said, Magnus has played transpositions of this opening before. So they've, he has reached the, roughly the same position at least twice before. Right. I don't know. I have not checked this myself, but yeah. I believe Hans on why so, would he not, why so would he I say that? I think the key element is exactly to ask what was the nature of this miracle? But I will say that, um, so here's the game. And uh, so I'll scroll through the opening. Uh, so it's a Nimzo Indian defense, but white plays G3. Hey, Oleg Romanish had played like this when we were on student team championships together in the 1970s. Uh, we played for what was then the Soviet Union. You're, you're old school chess player. So you were playing with um, Fedorowicz back then, probably, yeah. uh, when he was a junior, and, and Joel Benjamin, Danny Michael Kobe, Wilder. Andy Kobeck, Kim Commons, yeah. So, um, uh, John, yeah, Fedorowicz, Tisdall. Um, so anyway, okay. So it's now actually has more of the character of a Cadillac. Uh, black is counterattacking in the set to sometimes happens. Now, queen takes d4 rather than taking with the knight or pawn. Just to describe, like, it's not critical for understanding this case, but I, we are looking at the game, Carlson versus Neiman. It's it's sort of the, the moves themselves are not that important, except we'll, it'll help me to explain when we get to the critical position. Right. I'm just saying for, That's the, right. for the so, audience. Hey. So this is the official novelty. So what follows is prep. A, a novelty is a move that has apparently never been played before during a tournament. Not in the databases, at least not of elite games. I use a policy of taking moves by players rated 2300 and above a similar distinction is was made by the opening master disc series so uh anyway okay so now uh carlson regains his pawn now black however strikes into the center and here we have by the way the isolated c pawn so the question is can white generate an initiative especially with the two bishops to offset Black's structural advantage Black puts the question, and now white attacks black's queen, and this is the key move. If black has to move the queen, then white can continue generating an initiative. But as Neiman said, he reviewed before the gate, he knew that black has to counterattack with bishop e6. Which by itself is not unusual for players at this level to do what's called a Zvistjenzug or an intermediate move. So, right. so one piece is being attacked, but rather than defending it and just reacting to your opponent mindlessly, you make a move that also is an attack. So it's, a, it's an intermediate move rather than a gut reaction. Right. In general, there's a little bit of risk because white's queen could move and attack something else and then black would have the queen and something else attacked. But in fact, there's no way for white to really take advantage of this. Like this, this move, 
uh, doesn't work. I don't know exactly how black deals, but then I guess I can ask uh, the computer and the computer says black we, we can cheat. Queen A5 is the right way to, to deal with that. Well, okay. Um, at any rate, Carlson took this, took this, and then on the 15th move, Carlson thought for a long time, clearly out of his depth. And what's actually happened is that White's initiative has been squelched. Carlson actually took this and took this. So Black has double points on the King side, but they're really not an issue. The issue is this Isolani and the fact that White has to skulk with this King to defend E2 and then defend the open file. So, so, so again, just to describe, on move 15, on move 14, I guess, there was the novelty. On move 15, move, Hans move made... 10, the official novelty. Move 13, the, the definite important preparation move. Right, and, and, and Hans, who said after the game, and before, but before the cheating accusations, that he had had this position on his board before the game, because yeah. he was studying this, he, he came up with kind of a counterattack and it all boils down, both sides end up with weaknesses and it boils down to which weakness is more important. And Hans had determined, I guess, in preparation that Magnus Carlsen's weakness was more critical than Black's weakness. And yeah. this was the, the innovation that kind of led to the rest of the game, right. which earlier you described as the rest of the game is roughly clear cut. Like now there's a kind of plan of what you do against these types of weaknesses and the isolated pawn is a worse weakness than the slightly weakened king in an endgame and the doubled pawns. Yeah. And players prepare with engines. So you doubtless could see that Stockfish 15 to depth 26, which is a higher depth than I use, well, not always, but, uh, but to pretty nice high depth, gives black the better side of what still classes as an equal position. So three, right, it's still roughly equal, yeah. but it's it favors Hans, but it's 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 any... This would be ignored in most computer analysis as being better for black or better for white. Like it's not better enough that you would say black is winning. Yeah. And there's also what um, Jacob Agard or some other, I, there's not someone else, calls the zone of one mistakes or the slippery slope before you get to the zone of one mistake. This is a great example. The most natural human move to make is to guard your epoch. But in fact, right. Stockfish is saying there are three moves better than guard your e-pawn. It's time to jettison your e-pawn and start thinking about counterplay. So in other words, the computer so, by, is by saying... By the way, my, my only instinct was to guard the e-pawn, I might add. Yeah, but the computer is saying it's time for White to, uh, to make a concession and start thinking about counterplay. So that in itself is, in human and chess terms, a significant fact on the ground. So now it's saying half a point advantage to black. And okay, well, the other thing that I, my model has to deal with is that computer values jump around. Oh, it says actually that rook d8 was not the right move to play. So, I mean, I'd, I certainly say that Neiman is not cheating with Stockfish 15 in this position because what the computer is saying is you should have played your knight a5 strategy first and then decide where, which file to put the rook on. Instead, Neiman played here, allowed White to improve the king, then move the knight, and then move the rook to a different square. So you can see that over those three moves, Black actually lost the tempo. So this suggests that given that this was the critical position where a computer is most, I guess you could define the critical position as those positions where the computer is most useful as opposed to a human brain. Right. 
And so in this, this is clearly a critical position that the whole board has just transformed. And that almost, that's kind of what defines a critical position. And, and this is where a computer would have been useful. And here's where Hans makes his weakest moves. Yeah. So it suggests that he was not cheating over the board here. Right. So now uh, Magnus played the second best move, giving up the pawn right away when knight e4 was also moved to consider. Uh, but he gave the pawn right away because he sees that he can get Black's bishop for it. Why can't Black take the pawn with the knight? That's a good question. What happens if I take the pawn with the knight? Probably something really bad. In fact, actually, the computer, Stockfish, is saying that Black shouldn't grab the pawn yet at all. The pawn's going to fall. Why improve your position first? Well, the, the, the bishop takes pawn attacking uh, the rook. Yes, bishop takes pawn attacking the rook and then steady. Okay. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, good. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay. So, anyway, so bishop takes pawn. That was a little premature by Hans. And, um, and, that, and that could even be, you know, you could say youthful exuberance. He's, he's, beating, he's got a better game against the world champion. Yeah. So, White got counterplay. And, uh, you know, so this, this is, this is, Black's knight is sort of governed by White's bishop. I want to address that too, because after the game, again, there was a lot of people giving mostly circumstantial evidence that there was cheating involved. A lot of people said it was unusual for Magnus to not have any chances at all. But we see here, White did, Magnus did have some counterplay. He had some chances. Yeah. Yeah. He's, what he should, yeah so he should play Rook D8. So, because F5, and now play here. You know, this is do some weakness. And if White plays F3, that's the right way to break up Black's pawn chain. Magnus did this instead. And now the problem is, is that uh, by White not having an escape square that F3 would have made, now actually Black can very effectively start uh, depriving White's bishop of squares. So this bishop is actually is, is starved at the moment. So, so, okay, so here's the critical question. This is move 20. Yeah. Um, where did G4 occur? Move 28? Move 28, yeah. So the critical question is, or, or move 29, or no, move 28. Yeah. The critical question is, this is a crucial position where Magnus is offering up a shiny object. Most people would take that shiny object in a regular yeah. mm -hmm. blitz game or whatever. Um, and Hans didn't. So what suggests to you that there was no cheating, you know, when he didn't take that shiny object? Obviously he knew that Magnus is planting a trap because it even looks like a trappy sort of move. Um, yes, so that's right. So, um, you're saying that the 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 Magnus is your G4 looks like a trap. Yeah, Magnus maybe maybe was still thinking, well, I have better pawn structure and I've got a bishop against the knight. So if I open up the game, I'll be able to at least equalize, but maybe even have chances again. Um, but here, however, though, Magnus would have been well advised, as the computer is saying, to remember the proverb taught to every Russian schoolboy. Yeah. All rook end games are drawn. So Magnus should have uh, whipped off the knight and, and, and started going toward making a draw. Um, but instead, Magnus moved. Right, because moved it was kind of e almost equal, slightly better for black, but almost equal, like right. equal-ish. But maybe he wanted to, you know, he goes for the win. He's one thing that makes him world champion is he goes for a win in equal positions or slightly down positions. He's known for that. And he people fall into his traps, but could it be the case? How would you identify Hans as to be not cheating 
when in the moves that followed after G4, after the potential trap? Yeah, well, that that at least in this run of Stockfish 15, he did not always play Stockfish's best move. He made slight, very human mistakes. And that's kind of what my model picks up in the official run. So another issue that I deal with quite in general is that there's no such thing as, quote, the computer's move. The move values are a distribution. For instance, here, Hans played a humanly wonderful move. And I would say that's definitely the best move. But in this trial of Stockfish 15 to Depth 22, Stockfish 15 actually prefers the knight move, allowing white to get into a rook ending again. You know, but you know, better than, than where it was before. But still, I would say that, that if you allow... Um, uh, well, I guess the, 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 the computer is saying that bishop takes c4 is really lost for white. So what I know. Okay. Um, at any rate, but if you run the computer to a slightly different depth, I bet there would be a depth where e3 is the best move. Well, let me ask you a question. Was e3 not the best move? Like right now, the computer is at depth 22. Yeah. At depth 5, was e3 in the running? At depth 10, was e3 in the running? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Let's see if I can copy the... Uh, the move code of the position quickly. Because that's what you were suggesting earlier, is that if the first 15 moves, something like E3 doesn't show up, but then suddenly it shows up as the best move, and then Hans plays it, that's suggestive of cheating. But if E3 was always one of the top three suggestions from move one, it's a move like any other. Yeah, that's right. Let's see, I put computer analysis, that just, that just toggled it off. Let's see, is, is there a quick way to get the... Uh, the, uh, you you could start analyzing the position from def one, right? Yeah, I, I could. Indeed, I'm just I'm just trying to. I, I have the arena chess engine, chess uh, interface, all where I have. All, oh, let's see. Wait a second. I have, I'm being very silly here. I can just open up my copy of the uh, games. Uh, so here we go. Singfield Cup and um, Carlson Neiman. So now let me go to this position. What move is it? It's um, move 32. Okay. So now yeah. move 32. Um, move 32 was the E3? Yeah, so is, oh, you move 32 yeah. black. Okay, so yeah. now, I this is stock 15, but let's load another engine. So I have all the uh, engines and their versions here. Do you have Alpha Zero? Uh, I don't have Alpha Zero, and unfortunately, yeah. I don't have a working PC version of Leela. So, but I, well, I may have LC0 GPU, but I'm not sure it's really functional. No, let's use Stockfish. Okay. Uh, just to see. Stockfish 15, good for you? Yeah. Okay, yeah. now... There are many other little variables here. So what size of hash table do you want? Do you want it to be two PV mode, multi-PV mode, single PV playing mode? How do you want it? I don't know what those are, actually. Oh, they make a big difference to the distribution of values of moves that you see. Uh, let's run on through four of my processor cores. So we sacrifice scientific reproducibility, uh, but we get a stronger engine. Okay. We just want to see if E3... Like the game you showed me with Kramnik and Anand, yeah. that was an impossible move to see okay, for, well, for me. Well, now on this run, the engine is liking E3, clear up through depth 2930. You're still seeing my screen, right? 32? Yeah. Okay, so it definitely likes E3, which is different from the same Stockfish 15 engine with the 4PV mode that... Uh, that but what about depth 5? Depth 5. Let's scroll up to depth 5. At depth 5... It was knight c4. Look at that. Death five and six. It wanted knight c4. 
But Dev7, okay, in a twinkling of an instant, it switched over to E3 for all the rest of the time. And can you see the second and third suggestions at depth three and four and five? Because I'm just sorry, that, curious. I have to change over to multi-PD mode, else they won't show. So I'm going to go, go in here. I'm going to clear the hash table so we get a clean run from a fresh start. And now I'll do what Chess 24 does and show four variations. Oh, actually, they have three. So I'll show their three. Chess bot used to show four. Okay. Chess 24 being the company Magnus owns, by the way. Right. Just to add. Yep. That is being tendered by chess.com. So now, yeah. uh, again, the analysis came out evenly. So at depth four, it thought that black was completely winning with rook C1 followed by rook A1, but that's silly. Um, okay, but at depth six, it has E, or depth five, it has E3 as the second choice. Oh uh, yeah, depth five as second choice and rook C6 protecting the knight is top choice. Then at depth eight and nine, it's it switches over to E3 being the top choice. So, so it's not unusual for a, 2700 or even a 2500 level player to see right. a second choice that's five moves deep right but also notice that here knight c4 it says it's only one 100th of a point worse at depth 29 right. so the moves are really uh co-equal as far as it's concerned right so any variety of moves so what you're saying there is is that there were several moves that were winning here it was hard for hans to lose here even if he whether he had a computer or not. Right. Between the two top moves, now they're exactly tied, 1.86. So even though E3 looks like a trickier move, mm -hmm. it really is not, you know, consequential that it was a trickier move. And in fact, or not. now Knight C4 has taken over at depth 32. Right. Oh. So, so, so the evidence that, according to you, is that at least in this one game, and I'm curious if you looked at the other games from this tournament and other Huns over the board tournaments. Yeah. Uh, he's not cheating in this game. He's not, yeah. So I, so, so I, yeah. So, so as, as the official press release stated, I did not have any indication of cheating in this game. He played well, but, you know, there's, there's a large gulf between the threshold for well and the threshold for cheating. What, what about other Hans games that you've looked at in, I in recent no months? No evidence of cheating in over the board chess at all. So, and you've looked at you how many games of his have you looked at well i have screened 106 events counting online plus over the board since january 2020. okay and no cheating and, and, online or offline. and i get a completely normal distribution of roi my my measure so my roi screening measure is on the scale of flipping a coin a hundred times with 50 as the expectation and five as the standard deviation so i have 106 readings so um, you will, so the standard deviation's five. So one out of every 44 readings, you'll get more than two sigma up, okay? Uh, so that just happens by natural chance. And uh, so I have a few of those. And just to describe that again, so Hans is expected a certain percentage of the time based on his rating to match the computer's first pick. Right. And it's not unusual in some games for him to be two standard deviations away from that or two standard deviations below that. Right. And, but, but I'm saying also, this is my entries in this table are counting as complete performance on the available games from a tournament. And important to point out for a lot of the European tournaments, they don't post all their games. They post only the games that are broadcast. So my sample is definitely biased toward broadcast games. And yet, I have a completely normal bell curve with median 49.8, 
out of 106 readings of hands, uh, oh, that's counting his online and uh, and over the board. I could, I could restrict it to just over the board, but I could probably get a similar result. I mean, again, and let, let me take play devil's advocate just for a second. Mm -hmm. Are you able to, if he's, um, you know, it's just one move out of the game, would you be able to detect that? One move out of the game, probably not. But three moves out of the game, I, I did a quantify quantitative run for Ben Johnson on his podcast. And and if he picks always the fourth suggestion of the computer, uh, and, would you be able to detect that? Well, sometimes it's a blunder. Uh, yes, I do actually have the top two and top three tests programmed in my system. They're not calibrated, however, as it stands, they're slightly positively biased. I mean, and, and again, just to try to play the devil's advocate, is there anything you might be missing that would suggest he was cheating over the board? Like, is there any test you would like to do, but you can't for even theoretical reasons? Well, yeah, so as I said, I work in minimal information. So uh, by the way, at depth uh, 37, things boomeranged back to Knight C4 being the best move. So I said, uh -huh. my, my model, takes into account that moves are a distribution from the get-go, not any uh, incorrect semantic categories such as, quote, the computer's moved. Um, right. So um, at any rate, it, yeah, it's possible. So for instance, if I had how much time, if it's Grishuk playing, I can assume that Grishuk is a time pressure, you have to move 30, and that could influence my determinations. Okay, it's a little bit of a swipe, but it's but it's... Uh, for no, no, but that's a good point because time pressure might you maybe you could adjust your algorithm to adjust Grishik's rating down. Yeah, now he's in time the pressure. The most important and most difficult data. This is on the tournament stand. Is to record times when a player was away from the board, possibly at the bathrooms, or to record times when anything unusual might have been observed, or any unusual movements of a player. Uh, this kind of video analysis has been important in some very high-level cases played online, but it can apply over the board as well. And then it is possible that there might be a particular bump of correlation to the player's moves at those independently determined junctions. But that's not what's happening here. You're just saying hypothetically. I have no such information here. Right. So for instance, if every time they went to the bathroom, the very next move was higher correlated to the computer than other moves, then that suggests something. Right. And here's the thing, because of a much smaller sample, you know, my Z score, Z score might go down. But the fact of this correlation itself is a different kind of evidence in the Bayesian calculus. Now, let's looking at the other circumstantial evidence, um, is there anything to the fact that his rating has zoomed so much in the in the prior two years right now that's possible so one thing i will say is that the formula according to the pandemic post that i made lag post because neiman played so much that he already had a k factor of 10 uh, at the beginning of the pandemic um so my formula projects that from 2465 which was his long frozen rating um that he would go to um 2582. Okay, so in other words, of his rating increase, a little bit more than half is exactly what I would project as something any 
player of his rating would do. So it's a, here's his you know, lack of in-person chess the first summer of the pandemic. That's when it's frozen. And then he did go to Europe. It was able to play. So that's why he has entries in his uh, in his way. So anyway, so, you know, I, I wish there were a more formal study of these kind of arcs. At any rate, my back of the envelope formula would have put Neiman about where my, well, I guess he's not seeing my mouse, about 2,600, right. just 2,582. But, but factors in there could be, from what I understand, he had a coach for the first time uh, during this period. Yeah. So, so, so the addition of a coach could speed up the increase in rating. He also um, played more. So they looked at, I have seen something where they looked at junior players who made fast streaks up. And if you, if you don't do it by years, but by number of games played, mm -hmm. he did have enough games played that it could account for this, the increase in rating. Right. And it may be that, uh, see, what I think I'm essentially measuring is the amount of time spent improving one's game. And one of the things that ought to become part of a published paper, but it'll take a lot more work, uh, you know, of, of dotting I's and crossing T's, whereas because of my role in the chess world, I'm having to do this in real time, is that online chess has been just as good for improving one's chess as older offline chess has been. Okay. Well, actually, let me ask you about this. So let's, this is almost a different subject. Yeah. Um, and I do want to ask you the, about this for a few minutes, but let's, let, I want to finish Hans Neiman. So right. over the board and online from January, 2020 on, as far as you could tell, no evidence of any cheating. Right. So given the increases in his rating as they happened, I do not get a large increase. So the important contrast is this is completely different from the picture I had with Igor's rouses, where you know I I, I do up do my updates every week. I have tables with you know for the pandemic approaching three hundred thousand entries. So when I when I just simply grepped all the lines with rouses, I saw oh yeah my goodness the vast majority of these are above fifty. And I'm wondering why Chess.com was taking action. And by the way, I love chess.com. I think it's a well-managed company and site. I, I actually really think it's a great deal that they're buying the uh, Magnus's company. Mm -hmm. um, that aside, it's it's interesting to me that chess.com chose now to uh, investigate cheating allegations from 2020 on Hans Neiman, you know, when he was 16 years old. Not that that excuses anything, but you know, he's well, from 16 to 19, 20% happened. of his life. So, uh, so yeah. that's the thing. But you know, I, I'm I'm just analyzing the the data. I mean, my my role is just to put the data that has been collected in a scientifically neutral manner out there, so that it can be considered and hopefully avert cases of people rushing to judgment and doing silly things, uninformed things. And this has been a major dialogue with with FIDE, with the International Chess Federation on the whole, that they should take charge of this data so that they have it to hand and can deploy it rapidly and have their own people rather than a university professor who has to prepare lecture notes for a lecture in 90 minutes. Well, uh, and you and you refer to that quite a bit. So I'm curious, why don't you start a company and simply charge for every time you've asked uh, about a cheating allegation? I don't have time for that kind of, uh, of uh, the infrastructure that I would need to do in order to do that. If you get people who would like to start a company like that on my behalf, that's fine. But I wear three hats, okay? I'm primarily a computational complexity theorist. 
I do quantum computing. I have a skeptical position in quantum computing. I deal with, I, I'm researching a possible algebraic obstacle, which would amount to be a new physical law that um, may be an impediment towards scaling quantum computers. Now, what are the odds that I'm right? You know, maybe 10,000 to one against. It's, it's probably just silly Ken Regan, you know, not a, not a super top professor, but you know, with some ideas, uh, nevertheless, yeah, I'm a, I mean, I'll show you the idea. So you find it on this blog. You just have to uh, search grilling. I've had the idea out there for uh, over a year. So I'm making fun of the fact that there are quantum grills. This is uh, Amlan Chakabarty, who was recently Dean of Computing at the University of Calcutta. But this work was started when he was a grad student visiting Buffalo in 2007. By the way, have you noticed a trend of Indian grad students now moving back to India instead of Silicon Valley after they graduate? Yeah, the world is more mobile in general, yes. So, so yes, and we have we have opened up, some of my wonderful colleagues, uh, Bharat Jayaram and Shambhu Padya, have, have opened up a liaison with, with several Indian universities and with the connection over there. So anyway, okay. so this is the sort of algebra I do. And the point is that, that the Gibbs polynomial of this circuit may be an impediment in quantum complexity the way the notion of geometric degree gives us the only known nonlinear lower bounds in ordinary complexity. So another article covered that. So the good thing there is, is that for everybody worried about quantum computing's effect on cryptocurrencies, because it could break the cryptography of it, don't worry anymore if Ken is right. Right. Well, yeah, well, so here's the point. By the way, this is Gil Kali, who's a uh, major mathematician, uh, Israeli mathematician, skeptic of quantum computing, uh, co-author of the paper that statistically refuted the book, The Bible Code. Um, and anyway, uh, so he's a friend of mine. And, but the point is, you know, maybe there's a one in only a one in 10,000 chance I'm right, but $10 billion and more is invested every year in quantum computing. So you multiply one in 10,000 by 10 billion, you're still, you know, talking, well, million, at least a million <laughs> dollars yeah, like, uh, of, of, of potential value to my pursuing that instead of a chess company. So, you know, unfortunately, the yeah, chess world true. is nearer, so it gets my time, but there's really stuff I should be doing in quantum computing. So that, those are the parameters I work on. So, so, okay. So let me ask you this, and this is about chess. Have you moneyballed chess? In other words, are there statistical anomalies that one could take advantage of to better improve a chess? So for instance, well, you absolutely, my program could be used as a training tool. Most in particular, it could automate or or better improve what I think a lot of players generally do, which is prepare moves that are risky, but where the chance of the opponent finding the reputation is acceptably low. In other words, gambling moves in the opening. That's my student's term. And oh, so so by looking for an, an opening situation where the computer doesn't see anything until ply fifteen, that could be an effective trap in the opening. Correct. But, but even more, so that's a great way to analyze traps, which people could study, but it doesn't necessarily improve chess knowledge. That's true. It's, what about, yeah. What about money balling in the sense that, and money ball, of course, refer, refers to the statistics of uh, used in baseball and Michael Lewis's uh, famous book. But like, 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 for instance, have you studied what openings 
tend to be better to study for improving players than other openings or, or what knowledge, right. Uh, if someone wants to make that leap of improvement, is it better to study tactics end games, openings? Yeah. Like, I, I saw one study you did where people are more likely to make mistakes when they, when they're up upon maybe because they have overconfidence or, or something like that. So are there other anomalies like that? Yes. And you could use my model to, to, to analyze, uh, those as well. Um, so in particular, uh, I should call up one other relevant uh, fact in this in this Neiman case. This is the article written by the famous chess trainer Jacob Agard, total titled "Paranoia and Insanity." Okay, <laughs> and he says that he can detect obvious big holes in Neiman's game and others. And Neiman himself, for his following game against Ferruzja said that Ferruzja has a weakness when he's being directly attacked. Well, you can try to detect or at least you know, label such positions in my program and then compute the opponent's, the player's performance on those positions and thereby objectively verify that, yes, this player is not so good when being attacked or not so good with certain pawn structures or at endgames. And I actually think I was a 2,600-level player in endgames when I co-won the U.S. Junior in 1977. All five of my wins were in endgames. Wow, so it would be interesting. Over to see, yeah. So it would be interesting to see over uh, an analysis of all games which ones lead to performance results like that. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you so I'm, an, I'm an, a, an adult improver. After 25 years' absence from tournament play, I am playing in tournaments again. And someone told me at the very beginning of that, your rating is going to instantly fall 200 points, which is what happened mm -hmm. after if a 25-year break. Guess, yeah. yeah, Rusty, and also, do you think age plays a factor? Do you think people who are older calculate weaker and have to use other things like more chess cultural knowledge? Yeah, I'll say that's probably true. Uh, so, so you know, to, like I find myself in research mathematics um, having to... Uh, you know, rely on my pattern matching more than deep calculations. Like I've been very tired doing a maximum likelihood calculation to try and add a new feature to my model. And, um, and that is, um, you know, not working out so well. Uh, so, and, and so, so, so with, with chess, like, again, you had something where after you went upon, be careful of mistakes. Are there other computer with chess wisdoms that you've developed that you've seen in your data that you've already seen you're not really see i haven't had a chance to play in tournaments and you know maybe since i've monitored so many tournaments it's uh, quite possible that i have been the uh one only player who can't really play in them <laughs> so but i just haven't had time um, have you seen anything come out of the statistics, though, or have you re have you researched anything? So most of your research, obviously, is on the cheating. Right. But I bet you you could come up with various. Like it's it strikes me as amazing that no one's really studied which openings will give you the most improvement in rating points on average. Yeah, I mean, there's the, what I was about to say is you know Alpha Zero is famously credited with uh, showing the unsuspected value of the moves H4 or G4 and similar ones H5 or G5 by black earlier in games. So, so right. Lots of and people have thought, yeah, right. Like, like Carlson, for instance, after Al after Matthew Sadler's, you know, studies on alpha zero, Carlson started playing H4 and G4 a lot more. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's dead. Right. So there would be 
lots of op other opportunities for for things like that in uh, chess. Well, Ken Ken Regan, professor at University of Buffalo, thank you so much for this analysis. I mean, I don't even know what else to ask. I hope you come on again. Yeah. And I've long admired all all of your work, including. Mm -hmm. The one game we played that you don't remember, but that's okay. I was I was unknown, and you were the famous international Ken Regan, mm -hmm. and so so thanks once again. Is there anything else that you think interesting to say that I'm not asking about the about the Neiman Carlson situation or or chess cheating in general? Yeah, well, I'd be I'd be very happy to do a separate show where Bayesian reasoning, uh, you know, doomsday argument, that sort of philosophical thing, and relations to discussions like Nassim. Uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, Fat Tales, and because my model intersects with some of that stuff as well. And it, I would love to talk about about that. So yeah. we'll definitely have to have to schedule that. And that's very much relating to trading and investing. And and I have a lot of you know he. There's a whole difference between a normal curve with fat curves as opposed to a power law situation, which he discusses also in his work. And we could and this is very relevant for trading, particularly as coming up right now, for, hypothetically. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. If China invades Taiwan, we're going to have a seven sigma event potentially in the stock market. And different ways to look at that are are interesting. Yeah. And you're just this is my only be interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, this is interesting to everybody if they really know what it means. But your P equals MP work is very interesting. Yeah. So we'd love to discuss that at some yep. point. And uh, and yeah, you know, all, all that more sciencey stuff. But just to finish uh, on this note is the one, un see the cheating stuff is not unusual information. The one unusual information about this case is that Neiman had reviewed the Bishop E6 move before the game. And I'm not gonna say that that was uh, unlikely in itself, but the effect, the portion of people's thinking, that unusual bit I think has outsized share of the mind space. And I think that's the right way to approach this case. Yeah, I think there's an Occam's razor here, which is that there was enough background suspicion on other things. And then Magnus lost in an, what was for him in an unusual fashion that it all kind of bubbled to the top and things got out of hand. And, you know, we'll see what happens. So, but then there's a, the more existential question, which is that as let's say someone has a computer chip in their head, you know, if Elon Musk's Neuralink works. Oh yeah, this is a big thing. I talk then this, yeah. is chess over. <laughs> right, uh, how, how do you define yeah, implants? Yeah, how do we define human? Yeah, as a, you know, prosthetics, and all that, that's a big area. Yes. All right, well, Ken, Regan, we'll, we'll discuss that another time. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you for having me. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com.
Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious.